0: Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. About two weeks ago, I know many of us were amazed to see news begin to circulate of an unprecedented leak from the U.S. Supreme Court that the stain upon our land known as Roe v. Wade was likely to be repealed and overturned. Now, doing so would not make abortion illegal, but would return the legal question back to the individual states, essentially saying that the U.S. Supreme Court does not find a, an explicit or an implicit right to kill your child found in the Constitution of the United States. And so we must ask if this is overturned at the federal level, what can we expect as Christians, and how should we respond? As with many moves of consequence, it will bring great joy and great hardship. It will bring great joy as it will save the lives of uncountable numbers of babies just by eliminating the plentiful ease of access. We rejoice and we thank the Lord for that. According to the pro-abortion group Gutmachter Institute, 99% of abortions are considered elective. They are a choice of convenience, or preference, this would serve to stop many of those deaths of expediency. And yet if this law is returned to the states, it will, re- it will turn each state into a political battleground. Companies pulling out of certain states, Hollywood refusing to ride or act in any state that doesn't allow the killing of their unborn. It could escalate to states not recognizing other states. The options are endless of what it could mean and lead to. But what does that mean for us? Lanesville 2022 it means that this issue is not going away and that we are going to be confronted with it as it holds the national spotlight for us that's called opportunity for us that's called inroads to the gospel we are commanded in scripture to be ready to be equipped to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. This being one of the many reasons we joined together in corporate worship as believers, to be equipped that we might speak with authority and passion to a lost world. Now, some may recall, a few months ago, I believe it was back in January for Right to Life Month, we did a brief presentation on how to confront and easily handle the many arguments you'll encounter from abortion choice advocates. And some of you may remember the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D, if you'll take a look into your bulletins there, you'll find that as an easy way to quickly disassemble any argument in favor of killing the unborn. Every argument you will hear will typically fall into one of these four categories, size, level of development, environment, and dependency. And we put that flyer in there in your bulletin, which you may have received before, so you have something to take home. Put it on your fridge, perhaps. Wherever you can, remember it and learn it and apply it. Just for a quick refresh, let's look at them very briefly this morning. S-L-E-D. Now, this originally developed by Scott Klusendorf and articulated by the good folks at Stand to Reason Ministries. Very quickly, as we run through these, we perform an apologetic in SLED known as Trot Out the Toddler. And just about everything that is true about the unborn is true about the toddler. But we don't kill them. We can't kill them. So to bring out the toddler in your defense is very effective. So first is size size. The unborn is clearly smaller than a born human. It's hard to reason how a difference in size, though, disqualifies someone from being a person. A four year old toddler is smaller than a 14 year old. But can we kill her because she's not as big as a teenager? No, because, human, because a human being's value is not based on their size. She's still equally a person, even though she differs in that characteristic. In the same way, the unborn is smaller than a four-year-old toddler. If we can't kill the four-year-old because she's smaller, then we can't kill the unborn because she's smaller either. How about level of development? The unborn is also less developed than a born human being. But how does this fact, though, disqualify the unborn from personhood? A four-year-old female toddler can't bear children because her reproductive system is less developed than, say, a 14-year-old. But that doesn't disqualify her from personhood. She is still equally valuable as a child-bearing teen. The unborn is also less developed than the toddler. Therefore, we can't disqualify her from personhood for the same reason we can't disqualify the toddler. Both are merely less developed than the older human beings. How about their environment? How about their environment? The unborn is located in a different environment than a born human. But how does your location affect your value? Can change in your environment alter your status as a person? Where you are has no bearing on who you are. An astronaut who spacewalks in orbit is in a radically different environment than a person on the planet. But no one could reasonably deny his personhood simply because he's in a different location. Scuba divers who swim under the water, who crawl through caves, are equally as valuable as humans who ride in hot air balloons. If changing your environment can't change your fundamental status then being inside or outside a uterus cannot be relevant either. How could a seven-inch journey through the birth canal magically transform a valueless human into a valuable person? Nothing has changed except their location. And finally, degree of dependency. It's true that the unborn is dependent upon the mother's body for nutrition and a proper environment. But it's very hard to see, though, how depending on another person disqualifies you from being a person. Newborns and toddlers still depend on their parents to provide nutrition and a safe environment. Indeed, some third world countries require much older children to even be breastfed because formula is not available. Might have to look at that again soon here. Can a mother kill her newborn son because he depends on her body for nutrition? Or imagine you alone witnessed a toddler falling into a swimming pool. Would you be justified in declaring him not valuable simply because he depended on you for his survival? Of course not. Well, since the unborn depends on his mother in the same way, it is not reasonable to disqualify his value either. Notice that although toddlers and teens differ from each other in the Four sled categories, we don't disqualify toddlers from personhood. Since born and unborn humans differ in exactly the same ways, we can't disqualify the unborn from personhood either. But finally, brethren, let's take a look once again to Scripture. There are a thousand exhortations we could point to, a 20 part series on the evils of abortion, the slaying of an image bearer, the shedding of innocent blood that's forbidden in Scripture. But I'd like to pick out just one to hold on to this morning. I don't want to fill your mind up before we even get to the sermon. You know that we here at HHBC, we love our Greek. We love our original languages. They give us such richness and depth. And here the Greek illuminates the issue of life in, as well. In fact, you can even find part of the SLED acronym here. Now turn in your Bibles very quickly with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 41. Luke 1, And it happened that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, can we just smile that the very first person to recognize the very Savior of the world was an unborn child? Second, our word for baby here in verse 41 is brephos. What is the location of Elizabeth's brephos here? We notice it's in the womb. Well, now turn your page over to Luke chapter 2, one page over. Luke chapter 2, verse 12, Luke 2, verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Word for baby here again, breakfast. Now just look right down to verse 16 verse 16. And so they went in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby. Lying in the manger. Word for baby here, brephos. Now we know how particular the Greek can be, don't we? For instance, we have six different ways just to say the word love. To differentiate between the different kinds of love. The Greek means to say what exactly what it says. So our question, does scripture differentiate between a baby in the womb and a baby outside of the womb? The baby that leapt in Elizabeth's stomach, brephos. The baby that was lying in the manger, Brefos. According to scripture, does location change the value, the identity, the substance of a baby? No. Truth is on our side, beloved. So be bold in your conviction and in your love. Be praying for our country. Be praying for the Supreme Court justices as the pressure on them that's brought to bear will be immense. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we come upon a very difficult section of scripture after having just completed our three part series on humility in chapter nine, covering verses 30 through 41. It's almost as if we have received this vital teaching from our Lord just to prepare our hearts to internalize what comes next. What comes to us today is a warning to believer and unbeliever alike. It is a challenging exhortation. But if we be in Christ this morning, we will find great encouragement in these truths and promises as well. I do not wish any of us to approach our text this morning casually. In its words, our life and death. As expository listeners at HHBC, the pastor is not the only one laboring in a sermon. So strive, beloved. Strive. For the enemy would wish to steal this message from you, to minimize or blot it out from your memory stores. We must listen as the saints of the early church listened, as the first Christians who had no Bible to hold in their lap. When Paul's letter was read to them as they gathered, they must listen and retain or they will suffer spiritually. I feel impressed to remind us that our corporate gathering of worship is part and parcel of our warfare. It's part of equipping us and dressing us up in the armor of God. We are reminded that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Last week, as we completed the previous scene, we were reminded by Jesus in verse 40, for he who is not against us is for us. And while we examined what we did see in this text, we also examined what we did not see. We did not see a middle road. If you are not against us, you are for us. And just as true, if you are not for us, you are against us. Now, we live in a time and culture that is driven to separate people, to divide them based on ethnicity or skin color or economic status, or to be labeled as either the oppressed or the oppressor. Our entire culture is identity politics, but there's nothing new under the sun. That sinful tendency was just as alive in ancient Israel. But here in verse 40, as in many other places in Scripture, Jesus makes the ultimate distinction between People that ultimately matters. And it has nothing to do with skin color or wealth. Jesus says in verse 40 that there is no middle road. That there are only two kinds of people in the world. Lost and saved. There's your categories, Christian. Each of those categories has an end. Each has a destination. Now to the saved, we often associate the word saved as a positive word. And indeed it is but it is written from the negative standpoint. If you are saved, you are saved from something. Now, some people in their evangelism encounters perhaps perhaps ask the other person if they are saved, and they say, saved from what? That's a fair question, isn't it? As we live in an increasingly post-Christian culture, many really have no idea what you're talking about. If we were to listen to many in modern evangelicalism today, they would say that Christ came, that we might be saved out of poverty, that we might be saved from sickness, that we might be saved from a hard life. That, of course, is anti-gospel. Christ said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. No, we are saved from death and hell. We are not saved out of the storms of life When we come to Christ, being his child means that Christ is now in the storm with us and even better has allowed the storm or even made the storm for our eternal good, for our growth and for our sanctification. Romans 8, 28. That is the hope for the Christian in this life. We are promised trouble in this world, but that he will go with us and that he will be with us. If they persecuted him, they will persecute you. A servant is not greater than his master. That's our promise in this life. But a common phrase from this pulpit is that we need our eternity goggles on. We need our e-focals on that we might focus on and see the destination. It's often said that a preacher ought to preach with heaven in one eye and hell in the other. Both define the reality of every person I will meet today. It defines the reality of every person listening right now. 100 years from now, all of us are going to be awake and conscious of where we are. That is the gospel truth. We have before us heaven and hell. Those that are saved and those that are lost. The only two categories that truly matter that Christ gives us. Those who have come in repentance and faith to Christ and those who have chosen their own way. Today, as Jesus continues teaching his disciples, as the time to Calvary draws even closer, Jesus brings even further clarity to what he has been teaching all along. There were many things that Jesus wished to tell his disciples, but he gave it to them often in drips, didn't he? If he revealed it all to them at once, it would utterly overwhelm them. They would fall over in a pile of ash. But here in our text today, Jesus is giving them the pure dosage. He's delivering it raw. The time for baby food, for milk is over. Here is the reality of life. Here is the reality of ministry. Here is the reality of sin. Here are the stakes. Here's the seriousness of of sin. And here's the reality of how I will punish that sin. As we approach and dive into this text, a few foundational keys we need to lay down here. First, beloved, no one talked about hell more than Jesus. The doctrine of hell, most of it is gathered and systematized by the very words of Christ. Of course, most American evangelicals today would be shocked that Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. We must ask, is that the same ratio in our pulpits today? Not unless you want to preach to empty pews. Perhaps a hint of one of our problems in the American church. Talk of hell is considered ghoulish. It's considered uncouth. It's unsavory. In an age where we cordon off safe spaces to not be offended, the church has caught the same disease to an extent by watering down and avoiding certain topics. Today's text, beloved, is a beautiful example of why we are an expository congregation, why we preach verse by verse, why your pastor approaches the pulpit chained to the text. Every person in here would know if I skipped a single word. I don't have that choice. We preach the next verse, which means we preach the whole counsel of God as out of vogue and as out of fashion the topic might be. Beloved, if you want to pack a stadium for a church, you do not preach Mark 9, 42 through 48. This is a text that will empty a church of goats very quickly. It's almost as if the very fires of hell that Jesus speaks of reach up and burn away the tares amongst the wheat as you speak. If you haven't had someone get up and walk out of a sermon on you, you're probably not doing it right. The great evangelist George Whitfield opined, quote, it is a poor sermon that gives no offense, that neither makes the hearer displeased with himself nor with the preacher, close quote. So we get on with the task of our text that's set before us. Now, one quick point of order. If you'll look at our text this morning in verses 44 and 46, you'll notice that most translations will have brackets around those verses. Now, very simply, this means that these verses are not found in the earliest texts. And what would happen sometimes in in later texts and copies, often a scribe would really want to hammer something home through repetition. And here in our text, that's what we see. The scribes saw the incredible urgency of the message of the master here. And it's not as if the scribes made verse 44 and 46 up. If you look in verse 48, you'll see it there. You'll see it in verse 48 but they rewrote it to add emphasis to each point. Now it's regrettable, but it was done. So let us be thankful that God preserves his word for us, that we can know with confidence what was spoken. So because of that, when I read, I'm going to omit verses 44 and 46 because of the scribal edition. But fear not, we do not lose it. The same is written in verse 48, which was in the original. Some will wonder why pastor's skipping verses. Take heart, I am not. So with that, let's dive into our text this morning, beloved. Mark 9, beginning with verses 42 through 48. Mark 9, 42 through 48. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled, ...than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye... ...than having two eyes to be cast into hell." where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we greatly need your Holy Spirit in this text. Lord, I want to thank you that we are in a church this morning that will receive such a word with gladness and with open hearts. But Lord, we need a work done that only your Holy Spirit can do. Lord, that you would pierce between the joint and marrow, that you would do the work that only you can. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, if any of you have ever been to Italy, chances are you would have taken the time to visit the Sistine Chapel, which, of course, display Michelangelo's famous 16th century frescoes. Now over the years, the constant use of candles making smoke and the burning of incense and just the general passage of time and natural elements caused many of these magnificent paintings to become dull, looking almost colorless and lifeless. Well, some time ago, restorers began carefully removing the residue that had been dulling these magnificent works. But a remarkable thing began to happen as the restorers finished their work the people actually began to complain about the pictures. They claimed that they were too bright and that they were too vivid. They liked them the old way, regardless of how Michelangelo had painted them, regardless of the original artist, how he wanted them to be seen. Now, one of the last remaining paintings to be restored in the Sistine Chapel, which was just completed actually in the 1990s, was a painting titled The Last Judgment depicting scenes of hell with crowded figures crying out in agony. And like all the other paintings, the eager visitors were used to seeing this scene of hell was dull. It was worn. It was dusty. The tired and unimpressive, the almost unremarkable picture of hell made dull and hazy through time it is a perfect window into our culture into our culture's treatment of the final judgment that is to come. Today, hell is more likely spoken of by someone who misses a putt on a golf course or in profanity than it is in a pulpit. Hell is joked about. It's used as an adjective in common language. Listen to an average conversation in the workplace, and you are almost guaranteed to hear a mention of hell. It's so seldom mentioned in the right context and so often used in the wrong context that the truths of Christ's warnings have become dull, worn, and dusty. But that painting of the final judgment in the Sistine Chapel has been restored. It is now bright and vibrant. I imagine people like seeing that in its original bright and bold colors even less than the other paintings. No one likes to be confronted with the reality that awaits the majority of mankind. Now here in our text today, the the smoke and the incense and the dust is removed from the painting. These are the bright and the bold words of our Savior. These are the warnings and the exhortations from the one who created the very place he warns us of. We will structure this teaching in the way that our Lord has structured it, in that he means to apply this warning, this exhortation, this remembrance to every area of our life. Notice in our text we see reference first to the hand, next to the foot, and next the foot and then the eye. Jesus means to encompass all of our activity. The hand representing what you do, the foot where you go, and the eyes what you see. I've often wondered in the many things that Jesus said that were not recorded if he didn't include cutting out the tongue as well on that list. Jesus will show us today the immense cost of sin and the intensity with which we are to avoid it. Well, there's much more to say, but let us allow the text to unfold it for us. Beginning with verse 42, Mark 9, verse 42. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Well, let's dig deeper here. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, who are these little ones? Well, owed to popular culture and and some errant teaching, it's possible that some immediately had the vision of a child in their minds when we read this, when we think about little ones. And we could be forgiven for that. However, that is not what Jesus means. If we recall back in our previous verses when Jesus pulled the child to the side, to his side when we're speaking of humility he was not using the child because they were humble per se he was using the child because of their littleness because of their size because of their perceived lack of importance because of how little they had to bring or offer because how they were looked upon in their cultures is not worth anything they were uneducated that is what jesus is speaking of here This is not little in size, this is little in importance, little in sophistication. Now speaking of this word, little ones, R.C. Sproul, he writes, quote, When Jesus spoke of little ones, he was referring to ordinary believers, adult Christians who are not sophisticated in their learning, but seek to be faithful and obedient to Jesus with childlike faith, close quote. These are not the people the world esteems, but these are precious to Christ. Jesus is showing us that how we treat them, how we treat other believers, is how we treat Christ. When Paul was struck on the road to Damascus, having severely persecuted Christians, what did Jesus say? Saul, why are you persecuting me? The standard for the Christian is much higher. Not only are we not to be a respecter of persons, not only do we not invite the rich man to come first and sit at the head of the table, but how we treat believers is how we treat Christ. And to cause one of these precious ones, these simple ones, to stumble in their walk or in their faith, death is better. Those who may not have fancy learning and high degrees But they love Christ and seek to serve him with all their hearts to cause them to stumble. Carries with a tremendous consequence. That's what Jesus is saying. Now I could tell you as I read this, I know what I thought of. We are blessed in the Louisville area to have orthodox seminaries like Southern Seminary or the Master's Seminary out in California, a number of others around the nation as well. But that is not the norm. Countless men sensing a call to ministry, they unwittingly enroll in a seminary only to have their faith systematically picked apart and destroyed by the professors at those institutions, being indoctrinated into theological liberalism. Countless thousands have left seminary wondering what just happened to the faith and the joy that they began with. Those professors caused these men to stumble in a most spectacular fashion. I would not want to be those men on the last day. Taking precious ones, taking little ones, taking ones who came to you in a childlike faith to be molded for ministry, and you assaulted it. That's a horrifying thought, but it happens every day. Jesus paints a vivid picture of the consequence for doing so. It would be better for him, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now, Some may not be familiar with what a millstone is. This is a very large stone, usually over 3,000 pounds, that would be pulled in a circle by a donkey to grind grain. It would be better if that were hung around your neck and you were cast into the sea than to entice another believer to, into sin. Jesus is using an extreme analogy here to make a point. You're not to be as the world. I expect the world to try and make you sin. But another believer enticing or ensnaring another child of God, causing them to stumble, it should not be. And understand why, beloved. It is not because we are so intrinsically valuable. It's not because we are so special in and of ourselves. We're clay pots, remember. But Christ has purchased us. And place this treasure in this clay pot. The treasure of the gospel. And that makes us valuable. Who we represent makes us valuable. How we treat another believer is how we treat Christ. And Christ is in the Father. Thus how we treat another believer is how we treat the Father. If you strike a messenger of the king, the messenger has no value. But it's as if you struck the king himself. That's why the consequence is so great. That's why a horrible death of drowning is better than this. And Jesus says this must not be. We are to love one another with a fervent love. We are to watch out for one another. We are not to do something, even if our conscience allows for it, to cause another believer to stumble. And Here Jesus begins opening us up to the true warning of the text. He said it would be better for you to die a horrible death than to do this. Saying very clearly, there is something far worse than death. Now to the world, death is the ultimate loss. It's the ultimate penalty. There is nothing worse. But Jesus begs to differ in Luke twelve five. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Those are not the words of a hellfire preacher. Those are the words of Christ. Jesus is turning our gaze to the eternal. Heaven in one eye and hell in the other. We are called as Christians to live a certain way. To come to Christ is an abandonment of ourselves and of our desires. Many of you were here for our series in Mark titled, Count the Cost." And we looked at the markers and the requirements for biblical discipleship. What it means to follow Christ, the sobriety with which we approach such a calling because he demands it all. God will not suffer someone to cause one of his children, who is bought and sealed with the blood of Christ, to be guided into sin. He exhorts us in Matthew 18, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptation come but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And while one may unintentionally ensnare another to sin, that is really just the first layer, if you will. It's far easier for ourselves to slip into sin, for a self-inflicted wound to be had. As we move forward in our text, Jesus is turning the mirror inward. He's turning it inward and onto every facet of our lives. We look to our hand meaning what we do, our feet, where we go, our eyes, what we see. I'm going to read verses 43, 45, and 47 here as one. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, and if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Well, we don't have time for a lot of historical background on what Jesus is saying, but suffice to say to disfigure the body to a Jew was an abhorrent thought. It was not just abhorrent, but it was forbidden by the law, Leviticus 1928. This is extreme, radical language Jesus is using. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Your eye, gouge it out. And this is given in the aorist imperative, which means it is a command to do it now. Do not procrastinate or delay. What you are taking in through your senses, what you watch, what you touch, where you go, if it's causing you to stumble, you need to cut it off now. John Owen famously wrote, quote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be intense, be radical, be weird. If you need to cancel that Netflix subscription, then do it. Do we realize what is at stake if we are allowing influences into our life that bring us into the dungeon of sin? I had a brother who called me some time ago. He was very shaky on the phone. He had just taken a baseball bat to his laptop because he came so close to sinning in pornography. The fight was that intense. He couldn't just put the computer away and go for a run. The temptation in that moment was so strong, he took a bat to his laptop. Like Samuel hacking Agag to pieces in 1 Samuel 15. That's a brother who's captured the heart of Jesus' warning. No, it doesn't mean that we all go home tonight and smash our computers and TVs but it might if the choice is that or sin smash it smash it if it is causing you to stumble get it out get it out now we went 15 years in our family without a tv we survived not a legalistic law but something that we needed to do as a family guard yourself dear christian like a vicious pit bull The cost is far too high. The consequences for you and for those around you far greater than we realize in the here and now. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Our word causes here. Unfortunately, it's given in the present tense, meaning I'm sorry to say, saints, the fight does not end. It will continue on this side of eternity. Our rest is not here. Our reward is not here. We're not welcomed into his eternal rest someday because we found our ease down here. We must fight. We are given weapons because there is a warfare to be had. If there is something in your life that is hindering holiness, that is stifling sanctification, that is staining purity, today is the day for it to cease. Get radical. While Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here, he's not calling for self-mutilation, the principle is sound in exposing the heart. While Jesus speaks of cutting off your own hand or foot, the metaphor could easily be applied further. If every man listening here knew that if he looked at a filthy image again for the rest of his life, there would be a knock at the door, and a man would come in and he would put his hand on a slab and he would cut it off, guess what? Guess who no longer struggles with that anymore? Amazing. No longer a problem. It's the patience of God that lulls men into complacency. They do not yet see the judgment of God. It's like yelling out the window to a man who's falling off the Empire State Building, yelling, how's it going? And screaming, by. he gives you a thumbs up. So far, so good. When in reality, most are one breath. They are one heartbeat away from opening their eyes to a scene they cannot imagine. If you wish to sin, you will be given all opportunity for it. In fact, you'll be given all eternity for it. Spurgeon writes, quote, here on earth, their sin was in the bud. In hell, it will be full blown. If they were bad here, they will be worse there. Here they were restrained by providence, by company, by custom. There, there will be no restraints. Sin indeed is hell. Hell in embryo. Hell in essence. Hell kindling. Hell emerging from the shell. Hell is but sin when it has manifested and developed itself full. Close quote. We must make the connection of our sin with this awful place, for that is what our Savior does in our text. Jesus describes hell in our text as unquenchable fire. And we're given even more detail here in verse 48. Verse 48, where their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. Of course, this is drawn off imagery from Isaiah 66. We often see this translated as Gehenna. And we're told that in ancient Israel during the reigns of King Ahaz and Manasseh in the southern kingdom of Judah, the people became involved in one of the worst of all pagan practices. They were sacrificing their children to the pagan deity, Molech. And these sacrifices occurred in a deep ravine just south of Jerusalem. And that ravine came, became known as Gehenna. This practice of sacrificing children was roundly condemned by Jeremiah. And thank the Lord for King Josiah, who actually ended up coming in and putting a halt and a stop to this practice. But just to make sure that it did not begin again, Josiah sought to desecrate the ravine where these sacrifices were made. So he turned it into the city garbage dump. The refuse from the city, including the carcasses of animals and even the corpses of criminals, were carted out on a regular basis and they were tossed into this massive garbage dump. To keep the dump from overflowing, the refuse there was burned with fires that constantly were fed by incoming garbage. Meanwhile, worms stayed busy, devouring the carcasses of the animals and the criminals that were dumped in Gehenna. The smell was horrific. The whole scene was disgusting, revolting to all the senses of burning garbage and of burning flesh. Understand, beloved, it is not only the righteous that will be raised. The damned will be raised as well. Not only will the righteous receive their eternal physical bodies, which I know some of us are very much looking forward to, but so will the lost. They will also receive their eternal and physical body. Beloved, the worm does not die because the host is never consumed. Do you understand that? It is forever. That's often called a lake of fire. And some have asked if it's a literal lake, lake of fire. And the answer is, I don't know. But what we do know is this. When scripture uses metaphors or symbols, the reality is usually far worse than the analogy or the metaphor. R.C. Sproul again writes, quote, I would not be surprised to learn that a sinner in hell would do anything possible to trade his circumstance for a lake of fire. Close quote. Hell is not separation from God, as you often hear. The lost would love nothing more than to spend an eternity away from the person that they hate the most. God is most certainly there. Hell is not the absence of God. It is the presence of God without a mediator, without the person and the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the writer of Hebrews tells us. His love is not there. His grace and his mercy are not there. His loving kindness and his long suffering is not there. But his wrath is there and his power is there. Far from God being absent, the damned will live in the awful weight of his presence forever. This is what causes their sin and their anger to become stoked even further. Hell is not full of people trying to repent. You will not hear people crying out for salvific mercy. The fires of hell only harden and exacerbate the state of the individual already there. The more they suffer, the more they hate God. Every memory is alive. Every regret is magnified. Fire in the life of the believer sanctifies and purifies. It clears away the chaff. But fire to the damned is like a pottery kiln, only hardening them in the state that they came. They will grow worse and worse into infinity. Beloved, the awful sin that we see in the world today the unimaginable tragedies and evil, that is just the green shoots of what is going to manifest in outer darkness. It's just the beginning. Thomas Watson laments, quote, the wicked in hell shall be always dying, but never dead, close quote. People have a little hell in their minds because they have a little God. But we have a holy God. Therefore, we have a horrendous hell. Understand, beloved, it is not so much the act of sin that is itself so weighty. Some live a very moral life, and yet they will be utterly damned. It's not the sin itself that necessitates the flames of hell. It's not merely the sin, but it is the one against whom the sin has been committed that makes it so very necessary. Many think hell an unreasonable response to a little old lady who never hurt a soul in her whole life. Understand, beloved, it's not her level of sin that necessitates hell. It's the holiness of God that necessitates it. I often use the analogy in evangelism of George Bush when he went over to Iraq in the Gulf War. Many of us remember someone during a press conference there, they threw a shoe at the president. Do you remember that? They threw a shoe at him. Does anyone know what happened to that man? Prison for a long time. Now, what if one of you took off your shoe right now and threw it at me, which some of you may want to do right now? What would happen? Nothing likely. A deacon may escort you out. Same crime. Why did that man get years in prison and you only get escorted out? What's the difference? The difference is the one against whom the crime was committed. Beloved, we threw our shoe at the God of the universe, who is infinitely holy and infinitely just, even if it were just throwing a shoe, which is no big crime. But the gospel truth is, beloved, before we came to Christ, we threw shoe after shoe after shoe. Such offense, such a crime. It was going to take the sacrifice of the very Son of God to buy that pardon from our sin. As with all things in this life, the depth of the problem determines the extent of the solution. Our problem was big. Our solution needed to be even bigger. The sounds of the nails hitting his hands was the sound of our freedom ringing. The great bishop J.C. Ryle encourages us, quote, A single day in hell will be worse than a whole life spent carrying the cross. Cutting off the foot, cutting off the hand, gouging out the eyes. The truth is, beloved, we would cut off a thousand limbs to be holy if we caught one smell of eternal fire. If we heard one wail, we would flee from sin as from hell itself. Beloved, we're called to be radical in our lives. We do it with heaven in one eye and with hell in the other. This is the reality. So much of our lives are spent trying to escape reality, to amuse ourselves. Muse meaning to think, a meaning not to. Amusement literally meaning to not think. We have entire parks dedicated to not thinking, to escaping the reality outside the gate. Make it go away. Escape. Jesus says we mustn't. Here is the reality. If you be in Christ this morning, You are safely in the fortress of our mighty God. May this stir you on to boldness in your evangelism. Most people you will meet are one breath away from the realities that we have spoken of this morning. If you presume yourself in Christ, but you've not been radical in weeding out and gutting the sin in your life, today is the day. Grab the ax. Grab the axe. It's done. For if you are living according to the flesh, Paul wrote, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You have God's word on it. Let us be a people marked by holiness, marked by love, marked by radical obedience. It's worth it, beloved. The moment you breathe that first breath of heaven, It will have all been worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is not a word that I would have chosen. But we are so thankful that it is the word you have given. Lord, for us that are safely in the fortress of our God this morning, we ask that it would spur us on to holiness that it would spur us on to good works, that it would spur us on to evangelism. Lord, our world is dying. Lord, we know and we hold the answer. We hold the precious treasure of the gospel. Lord, if there be anyone here this morning who does not know you, who knows as the Holy Spirit ministers to their heart now that this is their destination, but they turn to you. Lord, I ask that you would finish that work in them now that you would bring about salvation in a mighty way. Heavenly Father, we ask that you keep us until we meet again next week in the fellowship and unity of the Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name.